Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees, the multicultural mess and secular scam. Thank you so much for joining me today, my friends. I hope you're having a great day and thank you so much for joining my podcast every single day. Uh, it's really an absolute honor. So thank you for coming back. Um, I just want to say, please don't forget to share this podcast Um and don't share don't forget to share this podcast with your friends family social media groups and um ask them each of them to have to share it with at least five people ask them to share it with five people and so on we go because that's important uh that we have a conversation whatever your opinion on uh, the topics are you're most welcome to have that uh exp- you're most welcome to have your opinion and uh, sharing the sharing your opinion, bringing out your opinion, uh, triggering, triggering a conversation is important to to let out the energy that's bent up inside you. So that's very, very important. Um, so once again, thank you so much for your time and for for being here today. Um, Today we're going to talk about something I read. I was reading up on a on a on a video I saw on YouTube, and I and I got the book uh, on a Pakistani uh, physicist. His name everyone knows him, Doctor Pervez Hudboy, uh, Hudboy, and he's very well spoken, uh, well educated um, physicist. Um, and uh, yeah, he he trained at uh, and he trained and is a visiting professor at MIT in the United States. That's the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he's well well aware of what he's doing. Now he wrote a book. He wrote several books. But one of the book I just I haven't read it fully. It's the it's Pakistan, um, and the name of okay. Hold on here, um, you know because it's 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 a big book. Um, you can download it, but if you want to buy it, you're welcome to. It's very expensive, I have to say that. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it. The name of the book is Pakistan Origins. Uh, where are we? Pakistan Origins. Identity and origins, identity and uh, future. Pakistan's origins, identity and future. It's a big, big book. Um, it's expensive, I have to say. Uh, it is expensive. And um, it's very important to read other people's points of views. So go ahead. He is a very interesting fellow. So I just saw the video about it, and that's why I bought the book. Uh, should I say downloaded the book? Because you can, uh, if you want to, if you don't want to download it and you want a paper copy, then you can do that too. Um, I have some, um, right off the bat, I found certain concepts that were not, I was not in agreement with. Now, he's, everyone's allowed to have an opinion, so I'm not going out there and criticizing him, like, oh, he wrote something wrong. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm just having an opinion. So let's start with uh, the word Hind. Pa- uh, pro- uh, Dr. Perez uh, Hoodboy says Hind is a word that never existed before the Persians came. Now, that is not completely right. And I know everyone says it. Oh, it was the Arabs who brought in the word Hind from Sindh. It's, it, it isn't true. Okay. Um, let me, let, let me, let me uh, clarify this. And I've, I've 
done a little bit of research on it, lots of research, and everyone is welcome to do their own research. Um, the original, the, the tribes that call this land Bharata, okay, uh, and from the Bharatiya, and from where we get the word Bharatiya civilization, um, their land was called um, Sapt Sindhu, and that Sapt is not the seven rivers, it's the small rivers that make up the big uh, river Saraswati, the small tributaries and all of that that make up the river Saraswati. And those are the Saptasindus around Punjab, Haryana and, and places like that. So seven rivers, uh, anything beyond the seven rivers was Sindhva, um, the land between the bodies of water. Okay, so India is a land of water, a lot of tributaries, a lot of rivers, and the land between the bodies of water is called Sapta Sindhu. That means the, the land that is made up of water and beyond the seven bodies of, of water, which is um, the small tributaries that make up the, the Saraswati River, which eventually dried up. So um, basically from that, because they, these tribes call the slam Sapta Sindhu, Sindhva, um, we get the word Sindhu, which means body of water. From that, um, the other people uh, on west of the uh, west of 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 this Saraswati River, the Persians and the Avesta started calling the land we now call India as uh, uh, Sindhu, but they couldn't say Sin, so they said. Hind, Hindva, uh, Ha, they used the word Ha instead of Sir, and that became, um, that became uh, Hind, Hindwa, from Sindhwa, from Sind, um, Sapta Sind, uh, it became Hind, and from there we get the, and, and after that it became slowly by slowly Hind. So this was way beyond, before, um, this was way before, the Arabs came. So this is not 7th century. Now I know I, even I've made a mistake about it. Um, I've made a mistake about it previously in previous episodes. I'm just going to correct myself. I apologize. Uh, so it was the Persians who took the word from Sapta Sindhwa uh, and then could not say S made it uh, H and made her and, and we get that. But the word Hind does exist in ancient scripts. Okay, uh, Hindate, Hindita, uh, it means to go, to wander, to roam, um, to ramble. Um, Hindate means to roam. Okay, Hind. Um, you also get Hindate, a uh, Hindanta, uh, to wander, to roam, um, to disregard the sight. Um, so these are the words that exist in Sanskrit dictionary. So the word sin does exist. It also exists in Prakrit. Pari ahindata. Um, so these words exist. They existed prior uh, to the word um, to Hind. Hindu, Hindu, that the the concept existed okay so it is important now there are people who have different points of view you're welcome to disagree uh so once again the word hind does exist 
uh, means that it has a different meaning, but it does exist. And this word Hindu, however, the name Hindu for the land comes from the word Sapta Sindhwa, means the land beyond the uh, seven rivers or seven tributaries that make up the Saraswati. Uh, and Sindh is basically water or bodies of water. So the land in between are surrounded by the bodies of water. And in the general, in the bigger concept, is it's the land that is the Indian subcontinent, um, surrounded by water then this is taken by the persians who later in included in the avesta um they could not pronounce the s and they made it a her and that sin hind, sind became hind and so we got hindustan but it's still the same meaning it means the land beyond the bodies of water that is the sapta sindhva so that is very important now this is the mistake he made uh paris harbin says it's a persian word it's not a persian word it does exist in in uh, sanskrit scriptures and it comes from the original word sind the sindhva so it's just a deformation of the word hin of the word sin it, it's not a foreign word at, at all it's a same indian word with a different pronunciation and it means the same thing okay and from that we get hindutva means all that lies in between and lies in between what hind what is hind water or bodies of water so the whatever lies between the bodies of water uh, all that lies between in in ideological terms the currents that form your waves what are the currents that form your waves it is important for you to understand the history the chain of events that make you up uh, atwa is all that lies in between so that's important so the word hin does exist uh, however it means to roam to gather to go and like i said it's Im it was important for me to say that now Paris, uh, sorry, Paris Hudboy also brought up something else in his talk, and this is what I want to clear. He said Savarkar proposes proposed the two two nation theory. It was not the Muslims who proposed it, Savarkar who proposed it, and even the RSS agree with it. That is absolutely wrong. Okay, because this is something that the Islamist and the Congress, which have lied about this inherent, but th this is typical, uh, you know, Islamic way of life you lie about something repeated 20,000 times and everyone will believe you but lying is is very common uh, for islamic theology and islamic ideology and also with the congress my dear friends it is that it is that marxist communist party that will say anything and people believe because they have nice fancy english accents people will believe them and no one wants to believe our very own people because they have taught us to hate our ancestors and delete the history basically replace that history with marxist communist history so uh the two-nation theory is actually first propagated back in 1867 by Syed Ahmad Khan, the founder of the Aligarh Muslim University, and not by Savarkar in 1937. Very, very important. Um, and I'm going to read for you an article from the Op India. So, um, Every all the Congress, including the Shashita Rule, says that uh, it was Savarkar, Savarkar who first 
advocated the two-nation theory. Similar claims are made by Congress all over the world and uh, ancestor, well known for Savarkar in 1937, okay? But this distorted media reports are, are only part of the context of the, of the speech. And here is the whole speech, my friends. Let the Indian state be purely Indian. Let it not recognize any distinctions, whatever, as regards to the franchise, public services, offices, taxation, on the grounds of religion and race. Let no cognizance be taken whatsoever of man being Hindu or Mohammedan, Christian, or Jew. Let all citizens of that state be treated according to the individual, worth irrespective of their religious and racial percentage in their general population. India cannot be assumed today as to be unitarian and a homogeneous nation, which is true. But on the contrary, there are two nations in the main, the Hindu and the Muslim. If such an Indian state is kept in view, Hindu Sang Sangatanis will, and in the interest of Hindu Sangatan itself, be the first to offer their wholehearted loyalty. Sorry, I apologize wholehearted loyalty to it. If I, for one, and thousands of Mahasabites uh, like me have, um, have set this ideal of the Indian state and our political goal ever since the beginning of our political career, such continue to work with its consumption at the end of life. This makes it clear that Savarkar has called for Hindus and Muslims to work together in one common nation, not two-nation theory. Uh, and suggesting the separate states for them. He even pointed out the dangers of separation. As it happened in many a country in similar situations in the world, the utmost that we can do under the circumstances is to form an Indian state which is none, in which none is allowed special weightage or representation and none is paid the extra price to buy his loyalty. So Savarkar also clarified that by the word nation in his statement, he was not talking about nation state. He meant many communities that need to live peacefully in, in, the, in the Indian state. He would not confuse between nation and state. Even if the state goes, the nation remains. When the Muslims were ruling over us, the government was theirs, but the existence of the Hindus was the most certainly intact. Um, if Muslims want, they would amicably stay with Hindus as a minority community. In the past, nations such as Prussia, Bavaria existed in Germany, but today they all have formed the Germans, the German nation. By law, no one in Germany may call themselves Prussian or Bavarian, but German only. Um, he said also that if Muslims want to go their separate ways, Hindus can't do anything about it. Hindus are a nation unto themselves. Considering this, Hindus should continue their freedom struggle by consolidating themselves, irrespective of whether the Muslims come with them or not. If they so desire, they may stay, else they shall go where it pleases them. Uh, so, by and large, um, Savakad never proposed the two-nation theory, but he actually called for uh, uh, Hindus and Muslims to come together in a common state. Now, I've said this before. When you say two nations in one, it means multiple communities within one. That's what you call multiculturalism today. Um, 
all these communities at one time were clans, were empires, were uh, kingdoms, and all these kingdoms have been amalgamated to form big, one big state. Now we know there were 500 odd uh, you know, um, kingdoms in India during the time of the British rule. Um, princely states as they were called each one each princely state was their own kingdom was their own territory their own law their own land with their own maharaja their own king uh so all of these were all different nations so there was not one homogeneous land it was never a homogeneous land it was always multiple communities these kingdoms have now diluted become part of the bigger indian state and because they become part of the bigger indian state today they are called as communities but they are all human beings of the same made of the same energy field, Ahambrahamasmi, they have just belonged to to lineage to different groups, tribal clans, uh, kingdoms, and and that's how they get their label. But in reality, if you remove the labels, they're same as every human being, and those labels are just communities, as we say today. So there are multiple communities, and that's why we say multiculturalism. And it was not to divide and rule, and he did not propose the, the two nation theory. It's taken out. Of context he talks about multiple nations in one and how they need to live together in order to form peace so he's not proposing any two nation theories um hypocritical woke congress people will always twist things to tell their story which is normal other people do too but it's just to tell you that story now this is to clarify what savaka said it's also to clarify what um what Perez Musharraf says that I don't agree with Perez Musharraf. Um, Sarkar did not propose the two nation theory in nineteen thirty seven. Sorry, not Perez Musharraf. I apologize, Perez Hudeboy. Now Perez Hudeboy also brings about something else, which is very important. Um, he says this is. He says the British bought about the two nation theory, which is absolutely wrong. Um, I don't agree with it. I know a lot of people say that it's the British who bought it on. So I just want to put my point of view. Um, look, during if you look at history all over the planet, you understand that all these kingdoms were breaking. All these kingdoms were coming down, all these empires, and they were breaking up into smaller kingdoms. Or should I say... Uh, geez, I just uh, they were breaking up into smaller kingdoms. Um, now these smaller kingdoms eventually it to hold on to power. So these noble nobles, the nobility realized that the bigger kingdoms, the Ottoman empires were coming down, the British empires were coming down, the French empires were coming, the Portuguese were coming, the Mughals were coming down, and they were all forming what is known as city states. Okay, so these city states all over the world were forming as a spin off or leftovers of what was originally bigger empires and bigger kingdoms. And in that context, you have Dr. Syed, um, what is his name? Uh, in that context, you have. Uh, the founder, Syed um, Ahmed Khan, if I'm not mistaken, founder of Aligarh Muslim University, uh, 
1876 says, um, you know, he proposes the two-nation theory. Now, I give you an uh, example. Um, we know Canada and the United States. They were made up of tribal groups, okay, Native Americans, who we call Red Indians, but it's a derogatory word. We're not allowed to use it. So uh, they're called Native Indians today. And each Native clan or tribe, uh, tribal group, was considered their own nation. Uh, there were many uh, nations, but these nations were actually tribes and clans, and they lived together with a common mentality. And there would be you know, trade, there would be war between them, trade between them, alliances between them. Um, and these nations today are called communities. Uh, so there are always many groups, many tribal groups, many kingdoms, many nations, many smaller nations, bigger nations, uh, bigger con 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 confederations, um, and then smaller confederations, all living within the same land, okay? Because it's easier to manage. And all these have one common ancestor somewhere up the line, you go back 500 years, 1,000 years. And so you always have multiple. Every country has the same. We have multiple groups, communities, kingdoms, nations, smaller princely states living within a larger regional or geographical area. It is the same all over the world. Then they join like a frequency, form an empire, and then they will break up as the frequency uh, dilutes, as the wave comes to the uh, shore, it breaks up and it goes back into the wider ocean. But this is part of history. You look look at history, it's all the same. The Persian Empire didn't start off as an empire, it started as a small tribe, small tribe that grew bigger and bigger and bigger and one day formed the Persian Empire. So these empires all coming down uh, during the end of the 19th century and they were forming city-states and formed that state, formed those city-states, that drive to form these city-states. You had um, uh, Sir, Ahmed, uh, Sir Ahmed Khan, I think, um, he proposed the two-nation theory. It was not Savarkar who proposed the two-nation theory. Savarkar was quoting um, a concept that was there and making people understand his opinion and what should be done to avoid the state from from joy, from breaking up into two nations. Um, just like in, in Canada, we also have Quebec and we have uh, English Canada. So in reality, in Canada is all those one country, one passport, but you have, uh, you have one civil code for everyone, one constitution, but each state or province has its own civil code. And in Quebec, they also have a civil code, their own civil code. But Although we are, although Canada is one country, everyone knows in Canada that there are two nations, two groups of people within one group. And there's always an English Canada and there's always a French Canada. So an English Canada and a French Canada. Uh, and because it's an English Canada, there's, there's a... Uh, if you go to any form of um, industry and there's always... You know, you'll have people who have um, 
are dedicated to serving peop, uh, the, the province of Quebec, people dedicated to serving the province, English provinces. Uh, then you'll have people with, you have laws especially for Quebec, laws especially for English Canada. And when we talk about Canada, we'll always talk separately about the Quebec, the French Canada and English Canada. So we'll talk about these two groups, two communities, two linguistic groups within a nation. And we all know when we speak uh, in North America, oh, well, there's a French speaking part of North America and that's Quebec. And then there's English North America, which is basically the rest of Canada and uh, all over America. So we know that there are sort of, uh, even though it's linguistically, two nations in one in Canada. And there are different uh, linguistic groups all over North America. So we know that, although on paper we are one nation in Canada and one nation in the United States. So... However you look at it, these multiple com communities also are regarded as nations. At one time they were nations, part of bigger empires, and they've dwindled down to become communities nowadays. And that's important to understand this concept behind it. So when um, you have people like uh, Shashitaru and you have the Congress groups and the woke uh, secular groups talking about two nations, well, guess what? Y you can tell them right away they're wrong. And one of the reasons Paris Musharraf says it, because he tries to shield um, the Muslims and the Pakistanis, now the Pakistanis, uh, from the two, two nation theory. And he says, no, no, it's not them. And he also says it's the British who made the two nation theory, which is something which even uh, the Indians say, um, I don't agree with that. Okay, I do not agree with that because I am a proponent of the concept whereby I say, it's our currents that form the waves. It's not the waves that form the currents. So whatever happens in front of us, whatever we do, whatever actions we take, it's because our currents, our doings, our transgressions, it's not someone on the opposite side of you who is responsible for your waves. You have not balanced your waves. So you are trying to point fingers at someone to justify your transgressions and say, oh, well, look, it's his uh, fault. Well, you may have engaged uh, either positively or negatively with someone else, but it's still your current and your responsibility that forms your waves. And so that's important to look at. I don't agree that the British broke us up. We were fighting a long time before the British came. Look at the history and you'll see fighting. When you have fighting, when you have war, when you have ignorance, you have to form alliances. Without the alliances, you know, you cannot, other groups cannot come into your land. So the Europeans came held as traders. They came as traders, they came to trade, and then they formed, in those days, there was no laws, no, no loyalty or responsibility. So you signed a treaty, no one respected those treaties. You signed contracts, no one respected the contracts. You had to have your own little private army, which is what exactly what the British East India Company had. And so they, they had their own armies to enforce these laws or enforce these contracts that they would sign for trade, uh, as a result of which uh, you for, had to form alliances with local communities on the ground. These local communities would form these alliances with you and, and you know, you would fight together to enforce contracts that were signed by local, you know, goons or local uh, zamindars and things like that. And so 
the British form trade relations with people on the ground. Those people use the Europeans, use the British. The British then became bigger and bigger and bigger uh, because people were fighting on the Indian subcontinent. The Mughal Empire had just come down after Ranzib. All his... Um, his concubines and the concubines of the British of the Mughal Empire had just, um, you know, um, and their children and their sons and their cousins had formed different groups, different small, small groups, and each wanted to hold on to power. And because of that, each one of them sided with different European powers who were trading on the ground. So some sided with the French, some sided with the British, some sided with the Portuguese, the Dutch, and they continued their fight over Europe. So Britain actually, um, Britain actually continued their proxy war a European proxy war on Indian soil in conjunction with local Indians on the grounds, Nawabs and Maharajas, who were also fighting and also causing pro having proxy wars. So you had two different groups of people, one the Europeans uh, forming alliances with different groups of Indians, as a result of which they kept fighting, fighting, fighting. And the last person standing in all of this was the one who formed the biggest alliance. So who formed the biggest alliance? Who used their intelligence enough to form these biggest alliances? Well, the British, they used their intelligence, formed the alliances, and here we go. And because they formed these alliances, they were the last people standing, although they were there for the shortest time. Um, they were there only for 190 years before that... Um, uh, starting from 1757, before that it was the East India Company. So when you say British colonized us, the British never colonized us. We formed alliances with the British in order, we formed alliances with the British in order to do only one thing, uh, enforce our strength on the ground as our people on the ground were divided between different groups, different communities, different Nawabs, Maharajas, Zamindars, each one with a private army, each one with no power and trying to fend off the, the theft of their land, their women, their gold, and so on and on and on went. And that's how the British came into India. Um, and when they came, like everything else, they took a census of the land. Okay, that's how the Europeans work. They took always took census. They didn't do it to divide the land. They didn't do it to divide the people uh, because they were already divided. They did it to take stock of the people, which if you go back to Europe, you will see multiple, multiple uh, generations. They take stock of how many people are on the land, uh, how many people belong to uh, um, a particular community in order to keep track of it. Uh, because in back then they too had, you know, land, big landowners, and each landowner had uh, had uh, slaves. I wouldn't call them slaves, but um, there's a word for it. I can't get the word uh, now. Indentured servants, um, sort of like slaves and indentured, but indentured servants, so to speak, who were. Um, who were attached to the land? Who were attached to the, to the nobleman, to the duke or the noble nobility that owned the land? And the, the, every time the the nobility would sell the land, the slaves or the people, the indentured servants would 
be sold or would go with the land because the slaves worked with the land and belonged to the land. And, and, and in order for a land to be sold from one person, one nobleman to another nobleman, it came with its servants, it came with its slaves, and that, the amount of slaves on the land, the amount of indentured servants, the amount of people staying on the land would then inc have the price being increased or decreased depending on, on a whole lot of other components. And so taking stock of everything that's on the land was very important for the Europeans because that's how the system works. So when they came here, they had the census again. But in this, on the Indian subcontinent, that method did not work completely. It did not work at all. And so people had to take a side, whether I'm, I'm this community, that community, this, this land, my land, because they just didn't have this way of life. So sometimes people would be... Um, sorry about that. Uh, people would be Hindu, but all uh, people would be Muslim, but, but it didn't matter the religion, the ethnicity on the ground, where they came from, which tribe they belonged to, which uh, village they belonged to, also meant something. Because you also had a lot of Muslims who were converted from Hinduism by force. They became Muslims to save their land, but they would still be going to temples because this is who they were for thousands of years. So you can't change that overnight. So... The, the the Islamic invaders came and, and invaded this land, forced the conversion, forced people to become Muslim, by and large, 95%, put economic pressure on them, took away the land, so if you do not convert, we take away your land, which is still happening even today, and, and no one wants to accept it. Um, so uh, they were converted, but they were... They still went to these temples, and Hindus would go to probably a mosque or, or mingle with their fellow villagers, but there was no fixed rule like in Europe. So the Europeans applying the European system uh, to the Indian subcontinent meant that all of a sudden people had to take labels, take, take sides, people had to take an identity, which didn't happen. And that taking off an identity, a European mentality, European way of life, then formed these divisions. And then we ended up saying, these divisions then became what is known as caste, which is a European mentality not an Indian mentality, it is absolutely European. And then from that lineage, you became, oh, well, this caste and that caste and this caste. But they didn't have these identities before. But this is how it came. This is how it came now. This European mentality of taking a census then becomes a, um, a lineage, which in, in Latin is caste. And so you get these divisions. These divisions then became fighters with each other. They fought with each other. They uh, interrupted each other. They went to war with each other. Although there was still war in the, on the Indian subcontinent, but it was not a hard and fast rule. It was for land. It was not between my brother and your brother and my caste and your caste or this group versus that group, because we didn't have these identities that were fixed to us prior to the Europeans coming. Now, 
every empire has its own way of taking census, taking stock of situations, giving out labels. Even the Mughals did it. The Persians would have done it. The Ottomans would have done it. But on the Indian subcontinent, it did not become so precise until the Europeans came here. Uh, it was more, uh, you know, it was more for land. It was not for the, your particular label. It was not for your identity. It's more for land and for, 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 for buying and selling of slaves. But it was not the way the Europeans did it. And that European way made divisions that have lasted till today. And that's why it ended up splitting. But the Europeans didn't do it to split. It's just their way of doing things, their mentality, their way of keeping stock um, of things, which was typical for the Indians, for the European subcontinent, should I say European continent, which is why they're still fighting till today. They don't understand that the labels that they've put on people is what the fight is all about. The moment they remove these labels, you won't have a problem. That's why you have problems between Ukraine and, and Russia, because these labels are descended of a way of life that um, has come down by man-made structuring of affairs, not by our human metaphysical our energy field it's man-made it's a perception of your mind so to come back to the indian subcontinent this breakup was a series of events that happened um that ended up in the division but the division eventually in my opinion ended up because it was an argument uh, there were three group two three people. One was Gandhi Nehru who couldn't stand Jinnah. The problem was with Gandhi and Nehru uh, who were in my mind absolutely supremacists in the ideology thinking that they were the soul of the Indian subcontinent. They represented the Indian subcontinent. They were the only ones who could have a voice for the Indian subcontinent and speak for the Indian subcontinent when in reality on the ground Gandhi and Nehru did not speak for the Indian subcontinent. They infuriated a lot of people. One of those people with Jinnah who took them to task and the Indian subcontinent broke up. So that's how the subcontinent eventually breaks up. But it's a series of this of currents and waves not formed for breaking up but just a way of life that was put on us for administrative purposes but did not belong to our mentality. And here we go from there onwards we get two three fools one the two biggest of those fools were Gandhi and Nehru and then you had um uh, uh, Jinnah picking up the pieces, uh, splitting it with a genocide, and here we go. So, by and large, this is what it is. Uh, and so, I don't, I disagree with um, Paris, Doctor Paris Hudeboy, but all the same, you know, we all can have an opinion, and that's very important to have it. So, please share this this podcast with your friends, family, and whoever you can, and hopefully we can heal and go the distance. Thank you very much, my friends. Cheers, and stay safe.